So that is a heavy story. That's a difficult passage in the Bible, and it's important that we look at it kind of all in that whole context. Uh, think about even just the fact that, right, the Israelites were able to sing a song of worship after that experience. But yet they're, you know, like when we hear that text, like our hearts are grieved. We think about just like, this is so heavy that, that God's justice had to be brought forth in, in this capacity. It's, it's difficult for us to wrestle with. It's texts like this in the Bible that have, have caused some people to even turn away from the Bible to trust in God. It, it's, it's a hard thing to consider. But remember, we just prayed over our own kids. Imagine if for generations, half of our kids were being slaughtered by the government, right? If half of our own children were being murdered left and right, right? And that we had been generations in slavery over 400 years, Right, that God ends up going through these great extremes, and this is the only way possible that he was going to rescue his people. And so I, I hope today I'll be able to answer some of the, the heavy questions and concerns that we'll have in this text. All right, like this is a difficult story. But this story is what the Old Testament is rooted in when it comes to God's deliverance of his people. Right? This is the story that often the Israelites would look back on as the founding of their nation. This would be when they'd see how God is faithful to keep his promises even when they were not. Right? This is when they would see that God cared for them to deliver them out of oppression. And they looked forward to the day in which he would send his Messiah to redeem us from slavery to sin. All right, so like in the New Testament, obviously we root our deliverance in what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. But this is the significant story. This is the text that people look to when they considered God's deliverance from their oppression. And so, so I'm going to take a look at a, a few different themes that we see through here and, and tr like I said, try to answer some questions. So the first thing I want to point out is that God knew that Pharaoh would not let the people of Israel go unless a mighty hand had forced him to, all right? That God was aware of that from the beginning. Before he even sent Moses out, God knew that Pharaoh would not give up easily, all right? Part of this is because Pharaoh, right, didn't want to admit that their gods, the gods of Egypt, were not all supreme and powerful, all right, in doing so, right, he also would be admitting that he himself was not a god, right? So uh, he, it's not something that, like, he would just easily admit based on a simple request of some sheep farmer, right? Like, it, it's not something that he's going to do. He's not going to surrender to the slave population of his own nation, right? And so it's going to take these extreme, right, measures to bring him to the point of humility, and even though his heart actually becomes humble time and time again, he ends up kind of being like, well, you know, were those plagues really caused by God? Like, no, nah, like now, now that the pressure's not on anymore, you know what, I changed my mind. And he actually would regularly go back and forth. And so, so before, right, God even called Moses, this is what God said in Exodus chapter 3, verse 19. He says, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand forces him. So I will raise my hand and strike the Egyptians, performing all kinds of miracles among them. Then at last, he will let you go. All right, so God was aware that, right, he wasn't just going to surrender based on a nice, polite request. 
It turns out that, you know, Moses, we read last week, was reluctant to go and talk to Pharaoh, right? He came up with every excuse that he could, and then even at the end was just like, uh, you know what, pardon me, Lord, just go find someone else. Like, just please, Lord, you've got the wrong guy. I know you've been planning this for over 400 years, but you, this was the one part you messed up on. And when Moses finally goes to Pharaoh and confronts him, it actually makes the situation far, far worse for the people of Israel. Pharaoh ends up thinking like, well, hey, like if these people have so much time to think about their God or, or to have this desire to go out in the wilderness and worship the God that they serve, maybe they're not working hard enough, right? That, that Pharaoh actually ends up, uh, because the people of Israel were making bricks, he removes the straw He no longer provides the straw, the means to which they needed to make those bricks, and required them to find that themselves. But at the same time, he demands the same quota of bricks to be produced every day. And when that fails to happen, he actually has the Israelite foreman whipped and beaten in front of everyone. And, And they go and beg Pharaoh, and they say, listen, like, we can't keep up with your demand. We can't produce the number of bricks that you're asking us, right? And, and like, they're frustrated, like, we can't do this. And he beats them anyway and says, no, I'm not changing the quota. You must produce the same number, and you're not getting any straw. And so the people end up being oppressed further as a result of Moses' request. And they actually get mad at Moses. They get mad at God. Right, saying like, like what, what is this? You've just made our lives worse for us. You've put the sword in Pharaoh's hand with which he's going to kill us. Right, they're, they're mad at this situation. And in fact, in the video, they, they made Moses seem a little bit reasonable, saying, right, this plan's not going to work. But this is what Moses actually said. Exodus 5, verse 22. It says, Then Moses went back to the Lord and protested, Why have you brought all this trouble on your own people, Lord? Why did you send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh as your spokesman, he has been even more brutal to your people, and you have done nothing to rescue them. All right, like even Moses is at this point of doubt, right? He's like, God, like you don't know what you're doing. You've just made things worse, and you're not doing anything to help alleviate their suffering, right? Like Moses is at this point of doubt. All right, and I just want to point out that uh, oftentimes when we first take steps of obedience to trust God and whatever he's leading us to do, life may get worse before it gets better. All right, Jesus talked about that in the four seed parable that people, some people, when they hear the word of God, it enters their hearts and they receive it with joy immediately. But just as immediately when life becomes difficult, that when life or persecution arise on account of their believing that word of God, that they immediately get rid of it, right? That this is a tendency that you and I have as humans, that we, we kind of want God to have this like fast solution or, or we anticipate that when he's fulfilling his promises, it means that life is going to be easy for us. It's like, okay, like I've stopped, you know, doing, you know, these sins. I've, I've turned to God and trusted in him. And so now my life is going to be good, right? He's going to, you know, all of these things are just going to work out for me. But life can actually become more difficult. We receive more persecution and suffering as a result of following Jesus, right? Where life might have been a little bit easier without, right? That the enemy wouldn't have been pursuing us in the same way once we became a part of God's kingdom. And so we see the same thing here. In Exodus 6.1, this is what the Lord says. Then the Lord told Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. 
When he feels the force of my strong hand, he will let the people go. In fact, he will force them to leave his land. All right. So, so we see that God does end up using these plagues as signs of who he is, that he is in charge of this situation. And so why does God use plagues? All right, like, we'd rather God just, like, write some message in the sky that says, hey, Pharaoh, I'm God, let my people go, right? Like, something, like, a little bit simpler, right? Like, God, you could prove yourself, prove who you are without having to take such drastic measures, right? Why does God use plagues? And just so you're aware, this isn't the only instance in the Bible where this happens, all right? This isn't the only time this occurs. Even the very people who God rescues and redeems, the same generation, when they go out into the wilderness and, and worship false gods, they go back to the, like, pagan roots, right? Plagues end up coming upon them as well in some instances, all right? And, and just so you're aware, we'll talk about that a little bit later today, but the New Testament isn't uh, absent of plagues either, all right? Like, it's, it's, it's something that God does. So why does God use plagues? And so uh, some of the reasons that God gives is that it will cause people to turn from sin, right? That it's, it's uh, allowing a portion of judgment on sin to come into a person's life to make them realize the foolishness of their choice, all right? Because the wages of sin is death, right? That's the only thing it produces. If I'm rebelling against God, who is life, the only option, if I'm going to choose less life in my life, is more death. It's, it's going to result in that. If I'm going to leave the blessing of the Father, the only option is to have less blessing in my life as a result. So, so these plagues can actually, at times, or difficulty in life because of sin, because of my foolishness, can cause me to finally turn from sin. Actually, side story, right? I, I know I've shared in our church before, right, like that I've been married before, right, that I've been divorced before I met Katie, right, that I had brought my own sin into that relationship. And yes, although I would like battle that sin in my life, right, like it wasn't until that marriage fell apart and that my lies about my sin had this real cost that I realized, like, I need to get serious about this. Right, like that I really was willing to finally cut that sin out of my heart and completely turn it over to God. Right, it wasn't until I realized how much sin cost me before I realized that I didn't want it the same way anymore. All right, that's just like, that's my own life. All right, another reason why God ends up using these plagues is that he actually ends up using the wicked, in this case Pharaoh, as an example of his glory. All right, and, and where, right, Pharaoh has already made up his mind that he's not going to do what God says. That Pharaoh has hardened his own heart, right? That Pharaoh has refused to do the right thing. And, right, God fortunately gives you and I so many chances, right? It's not like we're better than Pharaoh, but God does know when we go past that point of no return or when he, know, he knows the future outcome of our, our choices in our life, when we'll, like, never turn back from them. And so God's then option is, I'm still going to use this situation for my glory. I'm going to allow Pharaoh to be the fool for everyone else to learn from. All right? And, like, that's not a great situation, right? That's unsettling for us. I, I, like, I want to point out, like, this isn't fun for us to think about. All right? But this is the same God who loves us and is merciful towards us, right? Yes, he is just and righteous, but at the same time, he offers grace to you and I. 
okay? And so that's one of the things that he does. Another reason why God does this is to demonstrate his power over other gods, right? That God doesn't want you and I to waste our time worshiping things that will never satisfy us, right? That God, in all of these plagues, there's actually a parallel between him using, right, some of these instances to demonstrate that he is in authority over all creation and not the Egyptian, right, God of the sun or, or God of harvests or, or God of all of these different things, that he's actually making a point in these plagues that he is God. And none of their false gods, none of their idols that they worship will ever have authority in these situations, right? That none of them will actually pan out for the Egyptians, all right? Like his point in doing this is just to be like, hey, just so you're aware, like that's not the thing you should worship. It's not good for you. It's not going to pan out to a better life. This is one of the things that God says in Exodus 9, verse 14. He says, If you don't, speaking of Pharaoh, I will send more plagues on you and your officials and your people. Then you will know that there is no one like me in all the earth. By now I could have lifted my hand and struck you and your people with a plague and wipe you off the face of the earth. But I've spared you for a purpose, to show you my power and to spread my fame throughout the earth. All right, so one of the reasons why God does this is to demonstrate, right, that there's no one else like him. All right, there's no other God besides God, right? That none of their gods have this power or authority, right? That Pharaoh himself was not a God, okay? Like God's proving this to them. And that he's like saying, if I wanted, I could have just killed all of you instantly. But yet he's actually merciful. And not all of the Egyptians end up experiencing the same judgment that Pharaoh did, just so you're aware, okay? Some of them do end up turning in the end. Okay, but the, the, one of the reasons he does this is to show his power and spread his fame throughout the earth. Okay, uh, in fact, in uh, the book of Joshua, chapter 2, when they're about to go into the city of Jericho, uh, let me just read this passage from uh, Rahab speaking in verse 9. She says, I know the Lord has given you this land, speaking to the people of Israel. Okay, she told them, we are all afraid of you. Everyone in, this land, in the land is living in terror. For we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know that what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, whose people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and uh, the earth below. And so even Rahab later on, right, later on in the story, a genera- or I guess it's not quite a full generation later, but she is aware of what God has done to deliver his people. Right? She's aware that, yeah, it's the God of the Israelites. He is the God of heaven above and the earth below. Like, there's no doubt, right? Because every nation in this area, they all had their idols and false gods that they would worship. But what God has done is set himself apart from among those false gods, right? And, and the nations around Egypt, right, they were aware, like, okay, I guess it's, it's not Egypt's gods. It's probably not our gods because we're seeing a pattern here that God is God over all the earth, right? It's the people of Israelites' God. So one of the things, right, to consider is, right, you might think like, well, if 
there is a creator, right? Someone who's maybe trying to consider life and figure out who, who this creator would be. But if there is a creator of all life, he would probably, or they probably would have revealed themselves early on in human history, right? It would be weird if like there was some creator of life and then they waited thousands upon thousands of years before they're like, hey, here I am, right? And so like the religion that's true, so to speak, uh, would likely be one that has old roots, where God has already been working in humanity from the beginning, all right? Where God has already been revealing from the beginning. And so when we read stories like this, and we see that God has demonstrated that he is, right, that creator. He has the power to do the same things that the creator of all life had the authority to do, right? He sets himself apart from all of these other gods, right? You and I aren't like trying to figure out like, well, maybe it was the God of the Assyrians that we should worship. Maybe it was one of these, right, dozens of Egyptian gods that we should worship, right? By his demonstrating that he alone is God, right? You and I now in our generation have more confidence that we're worshiping the God who in fact did make the earth. Let's see, uh, Exodus chapter 10, verse 1. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, return to Pharaoh and make your demands again. I have made him and his officials stubborn, right? So I can display my miraculous signs among them. I've done it so you can tell your children and your grandchildren about how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and about the signs I displayed among them. So you will know that I am the Lord. Remember when Moses was worried about going back to his own people, he's like, are they even going to believe that I met you, God? Right? Like, they're not going to believe me. Right? Like, why would they trust that, like, I saw some burning bush and, like, you told me what to do? Like, why should they believe me? All right? So God not only is doing these sorts of things so that the surrounding nations know who he is, but it's also so that the people of Israel know their father, know their God. Right? Like, that's one of the reasons why he does this, right? So you will know that I am the Lord, right? And this ends up resulting in, right, them worshiping God at the end of this experience, once they're liberated from slavery. Let's see. Uh, all right. So how about this hardness of heart issue and Pharaoh? Because, right, that's kind of like, man, is God just, like, controlling our emotions? Like, what's happening there? Like, did Pharaoh even have a choice in this matter, right? You would kind of consider, like, what... What's going on? Like, what kind of God is this? Do we have free will as humans? Right? This is kind of like, as we read this story, you might struggle with some of those thoughts. Like, is it fair uh, for God to have hardened Pharaoh's heart? Right? These these are just and fair questions. And so so one of the things that uh, God had said from the beginning is that God was aware that Pharaoh would harden his own heart. And God also told Moses that he planned on hardening Pharaoh's heart. Okay, but yet it's not until the sixth plague when God begins to do this. All right, it's as as if Pharaoh had already made up his own mind time and time and time again. There's this pattern of unrepentance in Pharaoh's life, of Pharaoh hardening his own heart before God is like, all right, I'm just going to kind of like, you already flipped the switch, I'm just going to turn up the dial a little bit so that everyone else sees how foolish it is to be repeatedly rebellious and unrepentant. All right, like Pharaoh had already made the choice. God was just kind of amplifying the signal. All right, and one of the reasons why Pharaoh was able to harden his heart so much, I think, is because for some of these early plagues, I think it's the first three or four, uh, Pharaoh's magicians, right, his counselors were able to simulate the very things that God was doing. All right, so like Moses turns the water to blood, and then like 
His counselors are like, all right, Pharaoh, check this out. We figured out this way. I can also make this water turn into blood. Look at this, right? Poof, right? And then Pharaoh's like, you know what? Maybe Moses' God isn't that big because my guys were just able to do this. So I probably don't have to worry about his God. You know, I'm all set. And right, so like Pharaoh's like, okay, so I'm still God. That's probably what's real. And, and so that, that happens a handful of times. They're like, you know, Moses calls the frogs out of the Nile River and they surround everything. And then his magicians are like, you know, all right, Pharaoh, check this out frogs. And then like, you know, some probably a couple frogs hop out of the river and he's like, all right. So like, see, I don't need to worry about the Israelites God because my guys were able to do this. That probably explains it. I'm not worried. Right. And, and even like today in the last couple of years, there's uh, articles or uh, documentaries that come out about like these plagues of Egypt. And does science explain all of these plagues? You know, was it just like famine or chain reaction of like the river turned to blood and then the frogs came out because they didn't like the blood, you know, and then the the lice and all of these different things? Was it just a chain reaction of events? All right. And people in our own generation have had those very thoughts, right? Was like the hail and fire caused by a nearby island that had a volcanic eruption about that same time. And like, was that what happened? All right, was the, the darkness that came over Egypt a result of the ash from that volcano? Right? Was the, the, the death of the firstborn son, was it the fact that maybe some of the food because of the plague had spoiled and the firstborn sons might have had uh, the first portion of that food, that they had more of it during a time of famine and that caused their own death? All right, people come up with all sorts of interesting explanations for these things. All right, and God, yes, is able to work through natural means in the earth that he created. And other times he's able to do things by his own authority and initiation. Okay, and and the thing that I think is interesting here is that one of the reasons why it's not just natural happenstance is because Moses was able to kind of say when these things would begin and when they would end. Right, like how lucky would that be for Moses of like, Pharaoh, if you don't do this, these frogs are coming, right? And then like Pharaoh's like, I'm not doing that. And then like the very next day, frogs come. Right? Like, our own weathermen can't figure out, like, whether it's snowing this week or not, right? Like, Moses isn't some amazing, like, formulaic calculation predictor extrapolating these events, and he's like, you know what? I think it's going to be dark a month from now. I'll go tell Pharaoh that it's going to be dark that day, and then he'll think it was me, right? Like, Moses didn't have that ability, right? The cool thing we see here is that Moses was able to declare when these things would happen, and then also when Pharaoh would be like, all right, fine, fine, I'll let your people go, right? Moses would be able to say like, all right, I'll go plead to the Lord, and then those things would stop, all right? That one of the ways we know it wasn't just natural events was because Moses would have been incredibly lucky to have them conveniently happen every time he said they'd begin or stop. In one instance, he even tells Pharaoh, he's like, I don't know, uh, how about you pick the time you want this one to stop, and Pharaoh's like, how about tomorrow, right? And, like, and then it happens where the frogs all die that day, right? So it's, it's not just these natural events. Kind of like Jesus in the boat sleeping, taking a nap with his disciples during the storm. Like, was Jesus just super lucky when he's like, peace, be still, and then the storm stops? Was he just lucky or did he actually control it, right? It's like God has authority over all of these things. And so, so we see that, right, even today there's doubt. And so you can kind of sympathize with Pharaoh, like, well, if my, my magicians can do these things, is it really, right, is it really their God that's in control of all of this? All right, and another way that we know that it wasn't just like regular scientific natural happenstance is that God would regularly make a distinction between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel, 
right, where he would actually, you would see that the flies would all be in the land of Egypt, but the land of Goshen, there was not a single fly. Or during the plague of the firstborn, that, right, you'd hear the great cry in the middle of the night as people would wail and, right, grieve over the loss of their firstborn. But it says that in the land of Goshen, not even a dog was barking that night, right? So, like, you actually see, like, this, this comparison. God was able to make a distinction. So he's clearly in control. It's in Exodus chapter 8 where the magicians finally say, like, Pharaoh, you know what? You should probably start listening to this guy. It's, it says this. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. And then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. And so we see that, right, Pharaoh, even when his own counsel was telling him otherwise, like, to not do these things, right? So, like, just, hey, you just got to give in. His heart, he still hardened. One of the things to be aware of in the story is that, right, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Right? We see that in the New Testament as well. Right? We see that God does the same sort of thing today. In Exodus 14, uh, God says this, And once again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after you. I have planned this in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and his whole army. After this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites camped there as they were told. So this is talking about that event at the Red Sea, right? where God's like, listen, I'm going to harden his heart one more time. And out of his pride and arrogance, it's going to lead him to his own destruction. It's going to end up resulting in everyone knowing, right, that he is God, right, that had delivered them mightily, right? That what's interesting is we would like to think that when we follow our hearts that we're like somehow wise or wiser than God, right? People who reject God on account of any number of instances, they're like, well, I wouldn't believe in a God like that or I wouldn't worship a God like that. And although, yes, he's grieved by their rebellion and their sin and the fact that he wants them to experience life and forgiveness, right, he is grieved by that. Their, like, choosing not to believe doesn't diminish who he is. Just like Pharaoh's own heart being hardened wasn't like, well, I'm not going to worship him. I'm going to go through that ocean, right? I'm going to do this. It didn't actually result in Pharaoh being in any more control. God chose to use even the hardened heart of Pharaoh you're giggling. <laughs> All right. God even chose to use the hardened heart of Pharaoh, right, to demonstrate his glory. It's all right. We needed some comedy there, I guess. This is like a heavy topic, right? All right. So how about this issue of the firstborn? How about this issue of all of the firstborn of Egypt dying? Right? This is heavy. In Exodus 4.22, this is what God said. Then I will tell him, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. I commanded you, let my son go so he can worship me. But since you have refused, I will now kill your firstborn son. And so this is a tough thing to consider, right? God ends up taking out the firstborn of Egypt. And, and when we think about this, right, like the video suggested, right, Pharaoh had been doing this for years, killing all of the boys in Egypt. Yet God, it, it's only the firstborn, so it's not half of every family, it's, it's less. Another thing to be aware of is that, right, right, Pharaoh killed every infant, right, the Egyptians were far from innocent, 
okay? That this, this last plague was the last resort. It wasn't something that God celebrated in doing. God doesn't rejoice in the death of the wicked, the Bible says, okay? So that's not the case. Another thing to consider about these firstborn is that they were young and before the age of accountability, the Bible talks about this idea that when you're, when you're young and you don't even know right from wrong yet, there's this, this idea of the age of accountability. So it doesn't necessarily mean that these children who had died passed on to judgment. It's not necessarily the case. Okay? Uh, so we do see that. We see that, right, that God, the same God who ended up taking this firstborn son was willing to give his own son. Right? Years later, to deliver his people, right? God is willing to send Jesus to deliver us. All right, one of the things that is hard to think about is like, well, what do we do with the fact? Like, is God allowed to kill? Right, like that's an uncomfortable thought. Like, is it right for God to kill? And I want to point out that, that God has warned from the beginning that death is the consequence of sin. That even if God didn't take out those children at that time, they wouldn't be alive today. Okay, like death happens to all people in all generations. It's a cost of the sin that we have experienced as humanity. It's the brokenness and fallenness of this world. All right, as this story began, we read about Joseph and his entire generation had died. All right, that the Pharaoh that had initiated this, these plagues had died. That Moses' generation, those boys, had all died. Okay, that the Egyptian that was murdered by Moses had died. All right, that, that Moses himself and the generation that he leads out die in the wilderness. All right, like death happens eventually for all of humanity. And compared to eternity, any number that is finite is relatively zero. Okay, like compared to an eternity, like any lifespan is so small. All right, David in Psalms talks about that the human life is, is like grass that's been cut. It's going to wither. We're like vapor in the wind. It's just going to dissipate. And so even though, right, God ends up choosing in his authority as the author of life and death, right, takes their lives, it's not as though they would still be alive today. And even since sending his own son and Jesus' death and resurrection, victory over sin and death, right, has occurred, it's not as though Christians for the last 2,000 years haven't also been dying. The worst thing that can happen is not death. The worst thing that could happen is death being guilty of our sins, dying in our sins is the way Jesus puts it. All right, like the worst thing that can happen is us dying and not having experienced the forgiveness that God offers. All right, so like from God's perspective of eternity, the length of an individual life isn't the big issue. What matters is what can he do to, to turn the human heart, to woo the human heart right towards him, away from rebellion and towards life? What can he do to draw us towards him? So one of the things, right, that we see here is, is unsettling to us. We think about, well, like, you know, is the God of the Old Testament just so harsh compared to the God of the New Testament? Right? Oftentimes we think that. Like we think about stories like this and like, is it the same God? Right? Or people might even say, I just like the Jesus God, right? Like, I just like that guy, happy Jesus, sitting with kids on his lap. That's the God that I want to worship. All right, but God is the same in the old as he is in the new. All right, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
And although it might unsettle some of us, I want to point out that, that Jesus himself, right, does some pretty crazy things and will do some pretty, right, crazy things in our book. All right, like in the Old Testament, yes, there was the flood, the destruction of the Tower of Babel, right? The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, these plagues on Egypt, the destruction of Jericho, all of these events, the exile of God's people, right? All of these events that are just like heavy and harsh, these plagues that God sends. But yet in the book of Revelation, we find out that God will send plagues to a future generation, possibly even ours. All right, that like it's, it's the same God. It's the same God, that there is this coming day of judgment that's going to happen, all right? That the number of people that come into judgment will be greater in the New Testament than were in the Old, all right? This is uh, an interesting passage from Revelation chapter 9. See if you can catch up with me, Toby. Jump a few. Verse 20, it says, but the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that can neither see nor hear nor walk. Verse 21, and they did not repent of their murders or their witchcraft or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Right? We see that like even in the New Testament, book of Revelation, future, right, yet to come, there's still going to end up being these moments of justice and judgment that God pours out on the earth. All right? That Jesus himself is an authority over, all right? Like, that's unsettling for us, and so, like, that's, that's difficult to think about. But one of the things to be aware of is that, yes, God is just. Yes, there is a day of judgment, but he also offers a way of escape, all right? Pharaoh offered no escape when his wrath was poured out on the people of Israel, but God did, all right? In, in terms of the plague with hail, God actually, through Moses, warned them, saying, hey, get all your servants and your livestock out of the fields. Bring them in. And some of Pharaoh's officials actually believed Moses, right? They were like, and they're like, okay, I'm starting to believe in that guy's God rather than Pharaoh. Ah, see you, Pharaoh. I'll be right back. I, I just got to go to the bathroom, right? And they're like, they go and like call in their livestock, and those people's lives are spared, all right? Or in the case of the firstborn, being killed. God offers this way of escape that anyone who was in the house, right, who had sacrificed that lamb would be safe as death passed over them, right? We see that that ends up being the case. And here's this verse in Exodus 12, where after the Israelites passed through the Red Sea, they were not by themselves. It wasn't just the people of Israel. Check this out, Exodus 12:37, if you can find it. It says, that night the people of Israel left Ramses and started for Succoth, right? There were about 600,000 men, plus all the women and children. Verse 38, a rabble of non-Israelites went with them, along with great flocks and herds of livestock. All right, as a result of God demonstrating that these false gods were nothing and he was the one God in control over all the earth, some of these Egyptians turned from their pagan worship. Some of them chose to go with the people of Israel. Some of them left Pharaoh and his kingdom and went with them. They too were delivered from these disasters. And right, so we see that God is the one. Yes, he is just, but he offers this way of escape. Let's see, as Rennell comes back up, and I know I went a little bit long, but this is a heavy passage that it takes some time to, to process through. 
But God is the one who sent his son, right? He came down onto this earth to live a perfect life for us, who absorbed the wrath that was deserved on us, right? He bore the justice that we had deserved, right? He paid the penalty for our sin. And Jesus is this way of escape that you and I and all people are invited to experience forgiveness and freedom and life that is only found in Jesus, right? God offers this way of escape from future judgment. It says this in 2 Peter 3, the last verse that we'll look at. This is the New Living Translation. It says, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promises, some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone, right, to reach repentance or to repent. All right, God offers a way of escape. Justice would be if you and I and everyone, right, were, had God's wrath brought upon us because we've all failed, we've all rebelled. But God in his mercy and grace offers us forgiveness. It's amazing. And I know like if we'd rather just focus on that piece and kind of ignore all of these other aspects and characteristics of God regarding his righteousness and justice. But it would not have been right for God to have left the people of Israel in slavery. It would not have been right for him to stand by and do nothing as their children were continuing to be slaughtered. It wouldn't have been right. And we serve a God who does that which is right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your mercy and kindness. Lord, in reading these passages like this, it's unsettling in our hearts at times, but Lord, we realize you are grieved by the sin of humanity, that you are broken over the fact that people are oppressed, that people are enslaved, that people are raped, that people experience all sorts of sin on account of of humans mistreating other humans. I thank you, Lord, that you do bring justice, that the world will not continue like it is forever, that one day you will make all things right. But Lord, we are even more grateful that you offer us mercy and grace that is undeserved, that you offer us this favor. And Lord, now we can go forth forgiven, having no condemnation when we find ourselves in you that, Lord, we can go forth and bring this good news to all the world, to make your name famous, to make your forgiveness known, that all people would be invited into your family and into life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.